Let's open our Bibles this evening to the book of John, chapter number 21. John, chapter 21. And uh, this might be a little bit different kind of message than what I normally preach. Uh, really what I want to do is share some things that I've just had on my heart over the past couple weeks. Of course, we've uh, we've come back from, from vacation and uh, we went to the ocean. Sanctified people don't go to the beach, amen, they go to the ocean. And uh, so we went, we, we went to the ocean and, uh, and we've been there for a couple weeks. And, you know, it is not uncommon uh, when, when I go away on a, on a trip, on a vacation like that. You know, it, 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 some, some people will take a book with them and uh, they'll say, this book, Brother Ken, is what I'm going to read. And, and they just sort of, that's what they do. And they plan on living in that book for, for their vacation. That's how some folks do it. I do take books and things like that with me. But it seems like every year when, when we go away, it seems like God will take a thought or a scene of the Bible uh, or a truth, and, and that'll just be sort of my thought. And, uh, and it seems like all the time in those quiet hours of meditation, uh, of enjoying uh, God's nature and the beauty of it, seems like this thought will just rest on my heart. I don't plan it that way, but it just seems like it always works that way. And uh, God will just speak to me about certain things about that, that event or that scripture. And uh, that sort of happened again, as it always does, happens every year. And I just wanted to, I don't, I don't guess I've ever done this, but I just wanted to share with you some of the things that were on my heart over the past couple of weeks, because God used them to speak to my heart. And uh, and it may be a help to you, I don't know. Uh, I, you may understand a little bit more when I start preaching, but John chapter number, if you don't understand a little bit more when I start preaching, I've done something wrong. Somebody say amen. If you understand less when I start preaching, raise your hand, we've got a problem. John chapter number 21, and let's begin reading in verse number 1, and uh, we'll read not the entirety of the chapter, most of it though, give us a little bit of context to the Word of God. The Bible says, After these things Jesus showed Himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and on this wise showed He Himself. There were together Simon, Peter, and Thomas, called Didymus, and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other of His disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a-fishing. They say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately. That night they caught nothing. When the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered him, No. He said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and did cast himself into the sea. The other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fishes. As soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon, and bread. Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which ye have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of great fishes, and hundred and fifty and three. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus then cometh and taketh bread, giveth them and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed Himself to His disciples after that He was risen from the dead. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, 
Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my land. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. When thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. And this spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. When he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved, following, which also leaned on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? And Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, what shall this man do? Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this evening. What a blessing it is to be in your house. I want to thank you for the visitors, the way they blessed our service already. Lord, I want to thank you for the home folk that have been faithful in returning to your house tonight. Lord, most of all, I want to thank you, your sweet presence in the person of the Holy Ghost. Lord, you didn't have to show up, but you did show up. God, you met with us this evening already. Lord, I just can't help but believe it's because you intend on doing a work in our hearts and lives tonight. Now, I pray that as we preach the Word of God, we'd not say anything that would displease you and that there'd be nothing that we'd refrain from speaking that would magnify the Lord Jesus and be in your perfect will. Lord, I know that if we can do what you want us to tonight, we'll be the better for it. Lord, our church will be stronger and our homes will be stronger and our fellowship with you will be sweeter and our testimony will be better if we can just surrender and yield unto you this evening. So I pray that that would be accomplished. And I pray that the Lord Jesus would receive all the glory, for it's in His name that we ask it. Amen. You know, I, there's something, I guess, in my mind about going to the ocean uh, and walking up and down the, the beach there and the shore and listening to the waves and, and watching the water wash in and wash out. Of course, there's something therapeutic about it. That's why most of us go when we do go. But there's something to me that is stirring and thought-provoking about being there, seeing the vastness of God's creation. Now, it's all God's creation. There's something beautiful. I, I'm, I'm East Tennessee and I'm a mountain person. I love the mountains. I wouldn't want to be away from the mountains for very long. But there's something so vast about the ocean. It just gets you to think. You're standing there looking out at it and watching it. You're thinking of the power of it, the provision of it, the vastness of it, the wonder of it. The fact that those waves go exactly where God tells them they can go and not an inch further. And the fact that they keep their courses and the winds and the currents exactly how God wants them to be. It's just, I don't know about you, but it just arrests my attention and, and puts my mind upon the vastness and majesty and glory of God. And as we were walking up and down the ocean, I was looking and pondering this episode in the life of Peter. I began to think about how how infused with meaning this evening must have been to Simon Peter. 
I don't know if you're aware of it, but if you study the life of Peter, he had been out. You know the story, and I know the story of how he had cursed the Lord three times by the by the fire and how that had broken his spirit, broken his heart, broken his passion, his drive to go on, and how that the Lord had tenderly called specifically for Peter after the resurrection. Uh, you know the story of how Peter had sat across that fire of betrayal and seen the very eyes of the Son of God Himself and that was enough to crush him and to make him realize his disobedience and how that he went out and wept bitterly and for those days following the crucifixion, how excruciating his sorrow must have been as he wondered whether he had messed up beyond all repair. How sweet it must have been whenever the message was given that the Lord had commanded for his disciples and Peter to go and meet him in Galilee. I don't think the Lord was saying Peter wasn't a disciple. I think what he's saying is, I want Peter to know because he might think I don't mean him. I want him to know I do mean him. And he called him to go forth and meet him in Galilee. But it is apparent in reading John chapter 21, if you follow the timeline of what has occurred, the Lord has appeared to them in the upper room on two occasions. Uh, he has already called for Peter and God has made overtures to try to get Peter uh, to realize that he was still welcomed, he was forgiven, that there was life beyond failure. It's apparent to me that Peter was still struggling. You know, it's possible, I'm just sharing my thoughts tonight, it's possible to have to have dealt with something but not really have dealt with it. And that's where Peter was. I mean, Peter had messed up, he had failed miserably. And I think Peter was having a hard time letting that thing go. And God had already let it go. And God had forgiven him. And God had affirmed to Peter that he had forgiven him. But when you come to John chapter number 21, Peter evidently is still struggling because he tries to walk away from the life that God had called him to and go back to the life that he was living when God had found him. Peter's story begins, of course, for us in the Gospel record over three years earlier. Peter and his brother were fishermen. And that was one of the things that I was thinking about as we spent our time of, of reprieve and, and of, of, you know, reinvigoration, recharging, resting. As I'd walk up and down the ocean, I, I thought about Peter as a fisherman and how he must have felt in those early years when he had walked away from that life of fishing. I don't know that we can really, I'm talking about us as East Tennesseans, I don't know that we really understand what a cultural thing it is to grow up around the ocean. Uh, when a people grows up around a, a vast body of water, but can a sea or an ocean, their whole life is connected to that body of water. It provides for them. It feeds them. If they, and especially at this time in human history, if they wanted to eat for Larry, they didn't necessarily have to go out and earn. They could literally go out and pull food out of the ocean. It provided for them. It protected them. One of the reasons uh, that uh, so many ancient cities are built around bodies of water. And even today, we're driving through Atlanta, or trying to. And uh, I, I was noticing it being built on a river, and I was thinking about Birmingham, built on a river, and thinking about Chattanooga, built on a river, and thinking about Knoxville. All major cities seem to be built around rivers. And there's two reasons for that. One, it provides a defensive uh, advantage, because if somebody's going to invade you or attack you, they got to cross that river. And the same thing's true for a vast body of water. A people that grew up around the ocean, they just believed that that ocean had the ability to protect them from invaders. It also was a means of trade 
and of wealth and of prosperity. A trading port, a trading city, a port city was a place where vast amounts of wealth could pour in from all over the world. Peter had the ability to feed his family. Peter had the ability to raise his family, to make money, to provide, to live because he lived close to the Sea of Galilee because he spent time near the Mediterranean Sea. By the same token, uh, the sea had the ability, it literally, for those that, uh, that plied their trade upon it, it held life and death for them. They might go out, Brother Charlie, upon a boat. It didn't have to be the Mediterranean Sea. It didn't have to be the Pacific or Atlantic Ocean. It could be even the Sea of Galilee, as is so uh, vividly illustrated in the Word of God. And they could lose their life out on that sea. It provided the life and means for them to live, but it also could have taken their life. And how often that was the case back then. I believe with all my heart that if the devil had had his way on that night that the storm was raging uh, and the Lord was in the boat, if the devil had had his way, he would have sunk that boat. I'm thankful he couldn't sink that boat. Somebody say amen. You say, why is that? Because Jesus was on board. (laughs) I'm glad where he's on board, you can't sink the boat. Amen. You know why that pleases me? Because he's on board in my life. Amen. You can't sink the boat. And um, I, I, I believe it was a treacherous place at times. Now, Peter was a fisherman. This is how he lived his life. He literally committed himself to the sea. I don't think, Brother Charlie, it's a stretch to say that in some respects, the sea or the ocean was almost like a god to them. It was a thing that provided for him, protected for him. It might have killed them. It might have saved them. It was the whole thing that their life depended on. Now, there was a day when Peter, his brother Andrew and James and John, were standing on the seaside and they had been out fishing. They hadn't done well. And they had come in and they were cleaning their nets. The Bible says that this man, Jesus of Galilee, walked by and uh, he looked out at these men and he said, uh, lay down your nets and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We're giving a little more detail about Peter's experience. Peter had been fishing that night and had not caught anything. The Lord Jesus was teaching a multitude of people. And I don't know how much Peter knew of the Lord. It it seems from the Gospel record that prior to this, Peter, uh, his mother-in-law, the the Lord had healed his mother-in-law. So Peter might have been angry at him. I do not know. But there, there was some kind of interaction with him before. I don't know the degree to which it was. But it's apparent that in this Brother Ken interaction there by the seashore in the book of Luke, uh, chapter number 5, it's apparent there's not a really a closeness. They don't really know each other well. And the Lord Jesus, He's teaching this multitude. They're pressing upon Him. They're about to push Him off into the sea. So He goes to Peter and He says, Peter, you ain't using your boat. You ain't catching fish right now. Why don't you let me climb in that boat and push out a little way from the shore and teach the people? And Peter being a kind individual, he said, well, sure, I'd be happy to help any way that I can. The Lord Jesus taught that multitude. And after that, uh, Peter had a private lesson with the Lord. That was the public lesson. Then Peter had a private lesson because the Lord looked at Peter and said, all right, I'm done teaching them. Why don't we thrust out into the deep? Why don't we launch out into the deep and let down our nets? And why don't we catch something? Peter looks at him and says, Lord, I'm sorry. I hate to break it to you, but the fish ain't biting. I've been out there all night. I'm an experienced, seasoned fisherman. I know how to derive from the sea what provision and blessing and bounty that it contains. And I'm sorry to tell you, but there's no way we're going to catch fish. And Jesus says, just just humor me for a little bit. They go out a little bit, and the Lord Jesus says, this looks about right. Drop down your nets. It really didn't matter where they were. You know why? Because He's telling the fish to swim into the net anyway. (laughs) This is what I'm saying 
Peter was learning. Are you with me tonight? We ain't preaching yet. We'll preach here in a little while. We're just talking right now. And so, they let down their nets. The Bible says they go to pull them in and they're full of fishes. When Peter sees this and he recognizes, because he's a fisherman and he understands there is no human reason, no reason, intellectually speaking, that those nets should have fishes, he recognizes an important truth. He recognizes that the sea that had been his all in all, that had been his provider, that had been his protector, that had been his his threat and his danger and his adversity as well, here's a man that controls the sea. They gather the fish in, he falls down on his knees and says, depart from me, O Lord, I'm I'm a man of unclean lips, I'm I'm sinful, I'm iniquitous. And the Lord says, get up, Peter. This is the last time you're going to be a fisherman. From henceforth, you're going to lay down these nets. And your life won't be about looking to the sea to provide for you. It'll be about looking to the Savior to provide for you. Peter, when you need a meal, you won't go to the sea to pull fish out of it. You'll come to me and I'll provide for you. Peter, when you need protection, you won't climb in a boat, go out into a place where troops can't march on you and you won't hide behind that ocean where troops can't sail across to you and get to you. When you need protection, Peter, you'll come to me. I'll protect you. You won't spend your days, your purpose, your driving passion won't be to climb on this boat and go out in the middle and and to do the noble art and craft of a fisherman, which undoubtedly, I mean, most he didn't go to fisherman school to be a fisherman. Probably his daddy before him had done it, his daddy before him had done it, his daddy before him. And he was saying, you're going to leave all that behind, Peter. And now your most noble profession is not going to be to catch fish. It's going to be to catch men. You're going to be a fisher of men. What I'm saying is I don't know that we can really understand. Us East Tennessee mountain dwellers that haven't grown up around that, haven't looked to the ocean and the sea as the provider of all things and the protector in all ways. I don't know if we can fathom just what a big thing it was for the Savior to say, lay down your nets and follow me. That's exactly what Peter And Andrew and James and John did. They laid down their nets and they began to follow Him. And the Lord began to teach them lesson after lesson. For instance, there was a day when they were out in the wilderness, three days journey, and it wasn't just them, but there was probably close to 20,000 people there that day that had followed the Lord out into the wilderness to hear Him preach and to hear Him teach. And they didn't have anything to eat. Now, if they had been by the ocean, Peter could have done something about that. He could have got some nets, got out on a boat, went, and there was enough fish in the sea to feed everybody on that hillside if Peter could have just caught them. But here they are three days in the wilderness. There ain't no ocean around. There ain't no sea around. How are they going to be provided for? They bring a little boy to the Lord and say, this is all we've got is this little boy, and he's offered his lunch, and this is all we have, just a few loaves and a few fishes. And the Lord takes those things and in the same way that a fisherman might say, I can go out there and I can catch as much fish as I want. I can provide for my family as much as I want. The Lord takes that fish and that bread in His hands and begins to break it and provide it as much as He wants. I think He was teaching Peter, Peter, you don't need the sea anymore. You've got me. There came a day when they were out upon the Sea of Galilee and one of those storms popped up and was not uncommon upon the Sea of Galilee because of the climate, because of the mountain ranges for storms to just pop up out of nowhere, completely unexpected. And this storm popped up and began to toss this little boat that they were in. And here was the sea again. 
with Peter at her mercy and could have drowned him and could have destroyed him. This would have been his greatest fear as a fisherman. I mean, he would have woke up in cold sweats at night uh, dreaming about nightmares about what it would be like to be caught in a storm and have no way out. Now, here it was. It was reality. And then the one that he thought would protect him was asleep down the bottom of the boat. It looked like the sea had won. All of a sudden, they stir the Lord and say, Lord, care sound not that we perish? Don't you care about us? And he gets up and he walks out. And again, maybe it's just fresh on my mind because I've been standing beside the ocean, but that big vast area. I mean, we spent, we spent like five hours driving to get away from a hurricane. This means a lot to me right now. Encourage me a little bit. You may not enjoy this a bit, but it's speaking to me. And he steps out and he takes that hand. Now what they didn't know is that that hand when it had existed in all of its vast, majestic glory, had been the hand that these waters had been meted out in. They didn't know that. <laughs> they didn't understand that. When they looked up at that vast canvas of stars above their heads, they didn't know that at one time that hand had been used to measure the span of the universe. But the water recognized it. <laughs> they said, we've seen that hand before. We know who that is. And he reaches out a hand. He says, peace be still. And the ocean that had been the master of Peter and his ancestors for generations untold just quieted down like a little lamb and went to sleep. I think the Lord was teaching Peter that he could protect it. He didn't need the ocean to be a bulwark or a protector to him. He didn't need the ocean to be a, a provider for him. On and on we could go, I think, through the life of Peter and look at these instances when we come to John chapter 21, we find something startling happening. Peter just uses a few words to say it. If it was said in any other context, you wouldn't think it was anything other than just a, a short note out the door to let people know where you're going to be so they wouldn't worry about you. But it's apparent from what unfolds afterwards that these words were pregnant with meaning. He looks at his companions and he says, I go a fishing. Now, as we've already said, there were some things that predicated this, that, that, that led up to this. On the night that our Lord was crucified, Peter had sworn to the Lord, they'll kill me, but I'll never turn my back on you. I'll never forsake you. The Lord had warned Peter. He said, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But Peter wouldn't hear none of that. He couldn't hear it over his pride. And he was convinced he would never betray the Lord. And he dismissed and ignored the very warnings of the Savior. But the Lord had warned him, said, Satan has desired to have you, and he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted. Now I know we use that word converted in a certain way. And I'm not saying there's not a, a an application of the term conversion, being converted, being born again, as relates to Peter and spiritually what was taking place. But can I just remind you what the word converted means? It means to be changed. And it's a very fundamental level. And I think what he was saying is, Peter, what you're fixing to go through is going to change you. When you're changed, when this pride has been crucified, when this arrogance has been, has been buried, when you've been through this and you've been shown that you ain't all you think you are, then strengthen the brethren. The Lord didn't, or Peter didn't listen to that. He instead allowed his pride to drown out those warnings. And that night when they took the Lord from the garden, Peter had tried to stand up and stop it. He took a sword in hand. He cut a man's ear off. Now, I don't think he was trying to cut his ear off. He was a fisherman. <laughs> he was trying to cut that boy's head off and he missed. 
And in his rage and clumsiness, he missed. And he had tried to protect the Lord. And he had tried to, to, to shield the Lord. And he had tried to fight for the Lord. But the Lord hadn't asked him to do any of that. All he had asked him to do was to stay vigilant, and to trust, and to pray, and to see that his relationship with him was in the right condition. But Peter was too focused on trying to fix things himself to let God fix them. And so he cut that fellow's ear off. And I don't know, there must have been something arresting about that. I don't know if he was angry. I don't know if he was scared. I don't know what it was. But after that instance, the Lord puts that uh, Malchus's ear back on the servant of the high priest. And, and the, the garrison takes the Lord and carries him away. And the Bible says that, that Peter and John, they followed. But Peter, he followed afar off. He, he evidently was scared that he might be associated with the Lord. Maybe he was angry that the Lord had sort of chided him for uh, trying to protect him. I don't know what all was going on in his mind, but I know he's not in a good place when he gets to the high priest Caiaphas' house. Out in the outer courtyard, there's a fire burning. And he sits down to warm himself by that fire. You know, that's where it starts. That's where it starts. The world will kindle a fire and make it look awful comfortable. And you'll say, I'm not, all I'm doing is just resting my feet. I'm not living here. I'm not living in this sin. I'm just resting my feet. That's all I'm doing. But that's all it takes. Just a few moments by the fires of the world is enough to wreck your life. It was for Peter. He sits down. And there's a group of people sitting there. And one of them looks over and sees him. He says, you know, I think I've seen you with this Galilee. Peter says, not me. You haven't seen me. And he said, yeah, I, I think I've seen you. Peter says, nope, nope, you've not seen me. That seems to quiet the conversation for a few moments. But here, here a little bit later, somebody else speaks up and says, yeah, I know it was you. I know I saw you with him. Peter said, I'm telling you, you didn't see me with him. I don't even know that man. A few minutes after that, one of the young girls that's there looks at him and says, I know that this is the man. I know this is him. And listen to the way he talks. He sounds like one of these Galileans. There's no question that this man knows this, this Jesus of Nazareth. And Peter, he thinks he's caught. And he was caught, but not in the way he thought he was caught. He was caught in the snare and the web of the devil. He thought he was caught by those that were around him. And he cries out and he curses. He says, I do not know the man. And at that moment, the Lord had told him this earlier. He said, when you betray me, there will be a rooster that will crow. The cock will crow uh, twice. And before it hits three times, you'll have betrayed me. And at that moment, it cried out. I don't know where Jesus was. I don't understand the geography of the whole situation. I don't know where Jesus was, but wherever He was, Peter could see Him if he would only look at Him. You know what that tells me? That tells me that when He was sitting by that fire, He didn't have nerve enough to look at Him. Because Brother Ken, it wasn't until that moment that they caught eyes at each other. You know, when we're living in sin, we don't want to look at the Lord. When we're in disobedience, we don't want to behold His countenance and His faith. That's why when we live in sin, we get out of church. That's why when we live in sin, we avoid our godly friends. That's why when we live in sin, we don't open our Bible. We don't want to look at Him whenever we're living in sin. And so, the cock crows thrice and he looks up and he sees the eyes of God. And that's enough to crush him. Now, for several days after that, I mean, the Lord has told him he's forgiven. The Lord has called him. He's been in the Lord's presence. He's affirmed who Jesus is and that He's alive. But He just ain't back in yet. And on this night, He chooses to leave the life, the amazing, tremendous, glorious, miraculous life He had lived for three and a half years, 
and go back to his fishing nets. He says, I go a fishing. And there's a group of people there. The other disciples said, well, if you're going, I'm going. By the way, if you go, there'll be others go. I'm just telling you. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to guilt you or pressure you. I'm just letting you know. If you say I go a fishing, there'll be somebody who'll say, well, I'll go too. I'll go too. So they went with him. We read the text tonight. I, I won't spend time talking much about it, but let me just say, it seems like everything that took place on this, it's, it's almost like the Lord Jesus was taking Peter on a nostalgic tour of his relationship with him. Think about how Peter must have felt when he went out onto the sea. He hadn't been out there as a fisherman since the last time that he caught nothing and the Lord showed up. And now he's out on the sea again and cast after cast and pull after pull, retrieval after retrieval, they pull up empty nets. You know, I bet after once or twice, they probably didn't think nothing about it. They thought, well, fish just ain't around. It'll change. You know, the moon will come. Don't you know after three or four hours, people start to think, man, something's up. Something's going, something isn't right. Pretty soon, he hears a voice cry out to him from the shore side. And it says, children, have you any meat? He says, no, we don't. And you know, that must have smote him in the heart. It must have reminded him of that night so long ago when he had caught no fish. The Lord, you know what the Lord was trying to remind him of? There ain't no more going back to the sea for you, Peter. It don't hold anything from you anymore. You can't go back and fish those waters like you did before you knew me. You listening to me tonight? We've been born again. We've been saved by the grace of God. We've tasted the goodness of God. We can't go back to the things that we used to do. There ain't no fish in them sea anymore. There ain't no peace. There ain't no joy. There ain't no fulfillment. Children, have you any meat? No. And then that person said something interesting. He said, cast on the right side of the boat. I don't know if he's saying right directionally. Or what? If he's not, if he's just saying the right side, that's kind of smart, Elliot. Do it the right way and you'll catch fish. Sounds like a conversation between me and my wife. I can't figure out why this isn't working. Well, you ain't doing it the right way. Well, obviously. But I know, I think directionally. I think he had been fishing on the left side of the boat. Wouldn't you thought he would have learned after three and a half years that you don't fish on the left side of the boat, you fish on the right side? Now, it's funny to say but it reminds us of how, listen, the dog returns to his vomit and the sow to her wallowing. When we try to go back, we ignore all those things that we've learned in that three and a half years because we're trying to do it in our own strength. And so he casts on the right side of the boat and he goes to pull in and immediately he feels the heft and weight of 153 fish. And at that moment, I don't know if Peter knew it right away, but John did. John looks at Peter and says, that's the Lord. That's the Lord. It's as though the Lord's trying to remind Peter, you go back and there ain't nothing there for you, Peter. But if you'll let me guide and govern and direct things, you'll find your nets are full. Peter throws on his fisher's coat and jumps in the sea. And I don't know all of what that means. I just know he did it. The King James Bible tells me he does it. And so he jumps in and he swims to shore. He comes dragging that net. And then I think he saw something that must have hit his heart like a piece of cold ice. He sees a fire burning. He 
sees the Lord sitting at it. You know, the last time he was sitting around a fire, things didn't go so well, Larry. He had tried to avoid dealing with this, but he couldn't avoid dealing with it. Because at the end of the day, when we've sinned, we can't avoid dealing with that. If there's anything the 51st Psalm teaches us, it's that sin has to be dealt with. Psalms 51 is, is David dealing with his sin. And most people, after swimming through that cold sea that night, would have been thrilled to see a warm, roaring fire. But somehow I don't think Peter was. He looks and he sees a fire lit and he sees fish roasting upon it. What was the Lord trying to teach him? Peter, I don't need your fish. I got all the fish I, I need. I don't need your contribution, Peter. I just need your obedience. I don't need your wisdom, Peter. I don't need your experience and your knowledge. I just need your obedience. I, if you want to bring those fish you caught, come on, bring them, that's fine. But I've got enough fish for everybody. He was reminding him that that old dead life never really did have any joy, as our flesh likes to reminisce about it. Never did have joy in the first place. All the fish he was providing. So he comes to the ocean or comes to the seashore and uh, Jesus says, I've got supper fixed. Why don't y'all scoot up here and let's sit around and let's eat. And they sit around and they eat. I don't know that anything was said. It could have been. The Bible says that no man asked him who he was. And I tend to believe in that group of, of, of people. If there was any conversation at all, somebody would have said something like, so you're Jesus. <laughs> That's who you are. We're not dreaming this. We're not imagining this. I tend to think nobody said anything. They just sat there in silence and, and ate. And I know why Peter didn't want to say anything because he was loath to say what had to be said. After supper's done, the Lord looks across the fire and they lock eyes again. And this time, it's not Peter talking. It's the Lord. It's not a curse. It's a question. And he says, Simon, son of Jonas, now, Simon was his earthly name, just carnal. It was the name before the Lord changed his name to Peter. And, and it, 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 when the Lord used it, it's kind of like when you got in trouble and your mom would say your first, middle, last name altogether. When the Lord would say Peter's name Simon, he, he was implying that Simon had been living in the flesh. Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? That's the question that's been on my heart and mind for two thinking about that scene by the seashore and that question. I thought about what John says in the book of 1 John. Let me read it to you. I know I've, we read our text and I've not really read much Scripture since then. Listen to what John says, 1 John 3.18. It says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And I guess the thing that's been on my heart is when we want to love somebody, we want to love them the way that they, number one, that is best for them. When you love a child, you don't love them the way they want to be loved because they don't know how they need to be loved. If they had their way, they'd eat ice cream and, and pizza all the time. They'd stay up late and they'd rot their teeth and their brain and their character and everything else. You love them the way that they need to be loved. But when a person is mature and is aware and is uh, in control of their life, you typically want to find out how do they want to be loved? There are certain things that I might think would be a great gift for my wife, but that she has absolutely no interest in. I bought her expensive bass fishing equipment. 
I bought her some of the finest hand tools and, 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 and power tools money could buy. I just don't understand. You know the better way to do it is say, honey, what do you want? I've quit buying for dad for his birthday. I take him to go get a steak now. Uh, because he don't need nothing. He has everything. And you buy him something, you're just buying him something he has to store now. And so I, I sort of gave up on on neckties and coffee mugs and things like that a couple, three years ago because he's just got cabinets bursting with things like that and he didn't need them. And instead I said, Dad, how would you feel? What would you want to do? Would you just want to just go out and get something to eat for your birthday? He said, that'd be great. I guess what I'm saying is this. If you're going to love somebody, you need to find out how they want to be loved. That night, the Lord looks at Peter and says, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? What were these? The commentator's been arguing about it ever since the Holy Ghost pinned it down. But I'll tell you, I tend to agree with a group of folks that think he was talking about those fish. And he was saying, do you love me more than you love that way of living? Do you love me more than you love what the what the ocean or what the sea can provide for you? Do you love me more than you love your fishing nets? Do you love me more than you love your independence and your autonomy? Do you love me more than you love that feeling as though you're taking care of yourself? Do you love me enough to lay those nets aside? I think that's what he was asking. And Peter answers back and says, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And so, in reply to that, the Lord didn't say, Well, good, I love you too, Peter. Well, I appreciate what you said. That's a blessing to me. He instead says, if you want to show me you love me, here's how you do it. We're about done with the message, but if I was to give it the title, I guess I'd call it Declaring Our Love for the Savior. The Bible says we're not to love in word only, but in deed and in truth. And I, I just want to ask you not, how do we show the Lord that we love Him? Because He tells us exactly how to do that. The first thing he says is this. Peter, if you love me the way you say you do, he says, feed my lambs. And he goes on two more times and says, feed my sheep, Peter. Feed my sheep. And I thought about this. You know, if we want the Lord to know that we love Him, we're going to have to love like He loves. The Lord could have said anything. He could have said, Peter, if you love me, make a million dollars. Give it to the church. That's not what he said. He said, Peter, if you love me, build the greatest temple or monument to my, to my life and legacy that ever you could. That's not what he said. He said, Peter, if you love me, then I want you to love those that I love the way that I love them. When he says feed my sheep, isn't it interesting that he uses that language? The first time that he speaks to Peter about ministry, he says, I'll make you a fisher of men. Now, why did he say it that way? You know, he doesn't really talk. The Lord didn't talk very often about soul winning in terms of fishing. He spoke at that moment about it, Brother Charlie, but it's not like when you walk through the Gospels every every two pages, he's talking about soul winning as being fishing for men. So why did he say it on that occasion? He was talking to fishermen. All they knew was fishing. So he says, what you've been doing out there on the ocean, you're going to be doing out there in the masses. But you're not going to be targeting fish. You're going to be fishing for men. But now he doesn't say fish for men. He says feed my sheep. Why did he say that? Well, they had spent three and a half years with the shepherd. And they had seen what it was to love and to minister to people. 
broken people with no hope, with no help, with no advantage. I'm not talking about them being an advantage. I'm talking about providing Him an advantage with no profitability whatsoever. The people that Jesus reached, listen now, couldn't do a thing for Him. So how do you know that, preacher? Because He saved you and me. We couldn't do a thing for Him. That's the grace of God. He loved us when we were unlovable. Say, but Lord, I love you. Yeah, you love Him because He first loved you. When He found you, you didn't love Him. He commendeth His love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Not when we were His friends. Not when we were of benefit to Him. He wasn't recruiting a baseball team. He wasn't drafting a football team. He loved people that had nothing lovely about them. He found broken people. He found hurting people. He found people that had no society and no standing. And by the way, He didn't shun those that had money. He didn't shun those that had power. He reached Nicodemus. He reached Joseph of Arimathea. But He loved them just like He loved the poor and the broken and the infirm. He just found folks that needed Him and loved them with the grace and love of God. And I'm saying this, if we really love Him, you know how we can show it? By loving His sheep. Loving those that He loves. Loving those that are in need of the Savior and loving those that sometimes it's not easy to love. Because that's those that He loves. Loving our church family and loving those that know the Lord. The Bible says we're to do good as we have opportunity. We're to do good unto all men, but especially them of the household of faith. We're to love on a church family and love on those that maybe not be a part of our church family, but they're part of the body of Christ and they know the Lord and they, they love the Lord and we're to reach and to love those, Brother Ken, that need the Lord. We're to feed His sheep. We're to love like Him. And then I thought about this. Of all the ways that He could have described this calling, He says, I have been a shepherd and now I want you to be a shepherd. That's what a shepherd does. A shepherd's chief responsibility is twofold. One is to protect the sheep. Now why didn't he say protect the sheep? Because at the end of the day, the Lord will protect His own sheep. But the Lord does need someone to feed His sheep spiritually. That's how He ordained it. He is the chief shepherd, but in the New Testament church we have the under-shepherd. And that's what He was telling Peter. You're going to be an under-shepherd, Peter. You're going to spend your life ministering to My people. He was basically saying this, Peter, I've been a shepherd and now you're going to be a shepherd too. I would say this, if we love Him, then we ought to labor like Him. We ought to invest in the things He invests in. I thought it, it was amazing very often to think about that. You know, the Lord, when, when He began His earthly ministry with Charlie, He could have chose 12,000 men. He could have chose 12 million. There weren't too many for Him to handle. They chose 12. Of those 12... Only 11 of them turned out to be anything. He said from the beginning that one of them was a devil, and that was Judas. But he took these 12 men. By the way, let me say this. He loved Judas like he loved the rest of them. You say, how do you know that? Well, because when it came time to figure out who was going to betray the Lord, nobody said, is it Judas? They said, is it me? They, they thought it was more likely that they would betray the Lord than to ever think that Judas would betray the Lord. The Lord had loved him just like he loved the rest of them. He took these 12 men, He poured His life into them. Into making sure they knew Him. Making sure they were sold out 100% and committed to living for the kingdom of Christ and for the glory of God. In other words, His life's work was not laying up, uh, you know, treasures on earth. It was not building 401ks and 
and big paychecks and retirement. It wasn't building the accolades and the and the applause and, and praise of men. It wasn't building a legacy. It was building a church. You listening to me? It wasn't building a legacy. It was building a church. There's been a lot of good men throughout history that failed at building a church because they chose to build a legacy instead. You're going to have to choose between them. You can either build a legacy or you can build a church. What happens if you build a legacy instead of a church? Whenever you die, uh, the, the church dies with you. But you build a church that's not based upon your personality and based upon your 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 individualism. It's based upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It can continue on. He wasn't interested in building a legacy. He built a church. Uh, listen, he, he he wasn't about building a name, but instead he was calling out a body of believers. And he spent his entire life, those 12 men in particular, but not just them, the masses investing in their spiritual well-being. Now, of course, there are ways in which he invested in their spiritual well-being that you and I can't. He died on the cross for them. We can't die on the cross for them. We certainly can die to self for them. He, he paid for their sins, and we can't pay for their sins, but we can point them towards the one that did pay for their sins. And I'm saying this, if we love Him, you know what we ought to do? We ought to feed His sheep. We ought to labor like He labored. Whenever Peter is told this, Peter, the Lord looks at him and says, follow me. And evidently, it doesn't say it in the text, but evidently Peter said, okay, I'm with you, Lord. I'm signed up. I love you. I'll do anything that you want. And the Lord looks at him and says, you know, Peter, when you were young, you girt yourself about and you went where you wanted to. Here's what I think he was saying. Peter, are you sure you know what you're signing up for? Because Peter, you're the type of man that's used to running your own life. When you were a young man, you wanted food, you wanted wealth, you went down to the ocean and you pulled it out with your own two hands. You've protected yourself, you've watched over yourself, you've governed yourself, you've been an independent person your whole life, Peter. But if you walk this path that I'm calling you to, one of these days you're going to be an old man you won't be able to protect yourself. You won't be able to watch over yourself. You're going to have to trust me and depend upon me. And in fact, Peter, there's going to come a day when you're going to die just like I or I have died. There's going to come a day they're going to pick you up and carry you on a cross with your arms outstretched, Peter. And you're going to die. Listen, here's what he was saying. Peter, if you love me, go to the cross with me. You listening to me? Peter, if you love me, go to the cross with me. If we love Him, you know what we got to do? we got to lay down our life like He laid down His life. Now, not physically speaking and not literally speaking, but spiritually speaking, we have to take up our cross and follow Him. We've got to crucify self and let God have His will and His way in our life. It's one thing to say we love Him. It's another to express our love for Him the same way He expressed His love for us. How did He commend His love toward us? Christ died. How do we commend our love towards Him? We die to self. We lay ourselves down and say, Lord, it's not about me. It's not about what I want. But it's all about what you want. So how do you know this is what he's talking about? Because Peter did exactly what you or I would have done. He started to deflect. He was walking and he noticed John was walking behind him. And he turned and he looked at John. And I, I, I can't prove this from Scripture, but I'm not sure these two men like each other. I'm serious. I'm not sure. I mean, I think they loved each other. I'm just not sure they liked each other. Two polar opposite personalities. 
And something about John following them seemed to irritate Peter. There's John tagging along like always. And turns around and he says, Lord, what about this man? What about him? You know, some of us will never serve God because we'll spend all of our time saying, what about them? What about them? What about, why am I suffering and they're not, Lord? Why am I having to do this and they're not? Why are they being blessed and I'm not? What about this man? And the Lord looks at him and says, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? In other words, Peter, that ain't your business. That's my business. You just go ahead and follow me. Leave him to me. I'll deal with him. But whatever you do, Peter, don't quit following me. He says, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow me. If we really love Him, we'll lay down our life like He did. I, I'm not going to preach this, but this it was in my notes. I'm going to say it. We're going to live like He lived. Separated. Surrender. Wanting Thy will, not my will. Wanting for God to be pleased and glorified and not for ourselves. And I'm just saying talk is cheap. And everybody in this room, if I asked you, do you love the Lord? You'd all say, yay, I love the Lord. If the Lord looked down from heaven and said, Lovest thou me? Fred, lovest thou me? Taylor, lovest thou me? We'd all say, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. I'd say it. But that's not what he wants to hear. What he wants to hear is when he says, Feed my sheep, and we say, Yes, Lord. Here's my life. Take it and use it however you see fit. That's how we declare our love for the Savior. That is when this fisherman was if we want to use the term converted, he's changed. That's when he seemed to get right. And the next time we see him, he stands up on Pentecost and preaches with power and with unction. What happened to him that night? He made up his mind. He was tired of being half in. He was going to get all in. And if he really loved the Lord the way that he told himself that he loved the Lord, if he needed to get his head straight, he needed to prove it. And he needed to live a life that honored and glorified God. He declared His love for the Savior. I wonder if we do the same thing tonight. Bow together as the musician comes to play. The altar is open. And I just I just invite you to come. If God spoke to your heart, I don't, I'm not going to say a hundred things. I, I've already preached my message. I wonder if He knows that you love Him. Not just by, by your lips, but by your life. I wonder if He can see your love of Him in the way that you live. I wonder if you can say with confidence, I know that He knows that I love Him. Because I'm living in obedience unto Him. And if that's not the case, why don't you quit being happy and get all in tonight. Deal with this thing once and for all. Surrender your heart to Him. Let Him have His will and His way. Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.